Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is John Warlow. He is the founder of the Value Builder System, a company that helps business owners improve the value of their company. And he's also the author of the best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. So John, uh, I I have to say actually welcome back because I think we had you on for Built to Sell. You were good enough to do that. It's great to be back, John. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, let's just start. There's a lot of business owners out there, some of whom are listening today, I suspect, that want to sell their company. So if I wake up one morning and think, I want to sell my business, what's the first thing I need to do? I mean, the easiest thing to think about and the toughest thing to do is how well would your business thrive without you running it? Essentially, that's the essence of, of building a valuable company. Because when somebody obviously buys it, it's got to run without you. And if it runs well without you, you've got a valuable asset. If it doesn't, then you've, you've got changes to make. You've got some changes to make. Well, do you? does it also not have to be able to run without you? Do you have to actually demonstrate that as well? I mean, you have to sort of prove that so that some somebody can clearly see, oh, this isn't dependent on you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the smaller the company you have, the more skeptical a buyer is going to be that it runs without you. If you've got a 20, 30, 40 million dollar company, nobody assumes that that's being all run on the back of one owner. But if you've got a $500,000 company or a $300,000 company, that's when the radar of the potential acquirer is way up and they're like, "Okay, what happens when, you know, we write you a check?" And you hit the beach. Does this whole thing kind of fall away? And and so the smaller you have a company, the, the more skeptical they're going to be. So you in the value builder system kind of lean on these drivers of, of saleability, kind of the things that people use to determine or demonstrate that a company has value. And I'm guessing the you know one of them certainly is a lot of you know what's the revenue, what's the profit, um, but but you know does it go in terms of the financial part? Does it go kind of beyond? demonstrate or you know showing a, a profit and loss statement you're right it, financial performance i mean you can't get away from it it's important to acquirers right so what's your top line revenue the more revenue you have the more valuable your company is going to be generally uh obviously profitability is going to be important things like gross margin are also important here's why when an acquirer looks at your company if your gross margin is dropping consistently year over year they're going to draw the conclusion that you've lost your marketing differentiation i know that's something you talk a lot about with your customers, the idea that if you are starting to have to sort of compete and quote unquote buy business and therefore your gross margin is dropping, they're going to assume that the growth cycle of your company has matured. And that's going to be a real you know, down, uh, downward pressure on your value. Uh, if your gross margin, however, is, is consistent or growing, they're going to assume that you're increasing your pricing authority, meaning you're, you're becoming more differentiated uh, for what you sell or do. And therefore your business is going to be more attractive to acquire. So it's, it's, it's important. Financial performance is important, but there are some nuances associated with it as well. So I had somebody reach out to me a couple of years ago and they said, Hey, there's a company in your industry. They want to, they want to buy you out. And they're, you know, they're going to a couple of companies like yours and, and, you know, you're a real target and they want to roll all these companies up. And so I, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I'll play, <laughs> you know, t- tell me, tell me what you've got in mind. And they sent me this list of about 47 things that they needed to see. And I was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I'm out of here. That looks like a lot of work. So yeah. in addition to just like your QuickBooks profit and loss, you know, what do you, what do you, I mean, it seems to me like people, I mean, they're buying a business sort of on faith, but. 
maybe they're going to need more than faith. They sure are. And by the way, that's a, a typical phishing letter used by either, you know, a private equity group or a business broker. As flattering as it can be, it probably doesn't mean a whole lot. It probably, you know, there's you and 10,000 other people like you got the same letter. So it can be quite flattering, but but at the same time, I would have my radar up uh, at letters like that and and really be uh, fairly conservative in, a, in an approach. Look, they're gonna they're gonna want to know how repeatable is your business without you, and beyond just revenue and and profits and gross margin, they're also gonna want to understand your recurring revenue. So you know, subscription-based, annuity-based revenue. Why is that important? Well, it predicts that in the future that revenue will come in, again, without you as the rainmaker. You know, a lot of people know business owners are the sort of rainmakers in their company. And so acquirers want to know, okay, if we pull you out of the equation here, is this revenue going to continue? That's why they love service contracts, subscriptions, anything that where there's a sort of a tail to the revenue. Yeah. And, and you actually wrote a book about that. The I can't remember, forgive me, the subscription economy or something like it, that. It's not indelible in your mind, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's called the automatic customer. The automatic customer. But yeah, that was the basis of it really, right? Um, and, and I think that beyond the saleability of a company. I mean, I think that's just a great business practice, isn't it? To, to build in some sort of recurring revenues. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of the stress away from running a company when you know at the beginning of the month, you've got most of your revenue is already spoken for. You know, I, I used to run, this goes back 20 years ago, a project-based consultancy. And there was nothing worse than the beginning of the month because the beginning of the month you had to like being on a hamster wheel, start it all over again. Right. And, and try to piece together your revenue because and win some projects, bid on some stuff. And, and it was this constant scurrying around trying to find revenue. And you know, in a good month, you pieced it together like a patchwork quilt, but for a lot of months you didn't. And so Recurring revenue is one of those sort of de-stressors for, for people. They also, you know, it helps you predict what you're going to need in your company many years or m at least months in the future. I'm, I'm reminded of the guys at H. Bloom. Have you heard this story about H. Bloom before? I don't think I have. So H. Bloom is a subscription-based flower store, uh, flower company. Essentially, you can buy a subscription to flowers. You might say, well, who on earth buys flowers on subscription? Well, it turns out that a lot of very boutique hotels and sort of upscale restaurants buy flowers every two weeks from H. Bloom because they want to give that sort of professional image. Well, turns out the typical flower store throws out garbages, 60% of its inventory every single month month. Why? Because the stuff is dead in the fridge, right? They, they guess wrong at how many flowers they need to buy. Yet H. Bloom's spoilage rate is less than 2% per month because they know how many people are buying flowers that month in advance because they're all buying them on subscription. And so yet it makes your business way less stressful and also helps you kind of figure out how many trucks you're going to need on the road or how many guys you're going to need or gals you're going to need you know, 6, 12, 18 months from now, which is huge. So you mentioned the idea of growth potential. You see every day these, these IPOs um, coming out of companies that, that like WeWork, for example, just had an IP, yeah. IPO and last quarter they lost like $700 million. So <laughs> right. are people banking on growth potential? And if so, you know, how do you demonstrate growth potential. I, let's go down to the small business. Like, I think my business is awesome. I've done a lot of amazing things in my business. So clearly the growth potential is huge. 
Um, so that was meant with that was said facetiously. But I mean, isn't yeah. that that's obviously an important factor? But you know, how do you how do you demonstrate that, or how do you even quantify that? Yeah, so growth potential is really important to investors and acquirers, and a lot of it is going to be predicated on the industry that you're in, right? So, so if you're a law firm. Most acquirers know that for a law firm to scale, it requires hiring a bunch of associates, onboarding them, training them, and it takes years to really get them to be effective associates. And as a result, those companies don't scale very quickly, and and their their multiples or what acquire what you know people are willing to pay to buy a law firm tends to be fairly low. Whereas if you're a manufacturing company, and an acquirer can look at your businesses and say, if we can get the sales and marketing you know right and and bring in lots more business, we can just put on another shift, make the assembly line run twice as fast, or you know they can stamp out their widget much more quickly. They're going to pay a much higher multiple. It's why technology companies, ones in particular that are based on SaaS-based software, for example, are getting tremendous multiples because acquirers know they don't need to invest in a lot of infrastructure to scale. They can they can simply grow quite quickly by winning new customers. So, so you're going to want to demonstrate what's the model. I love looking at cost per account acquired as a key metric to share with potential acquirers. So, by able to being able to demonstrate like. I put, you know, $1,000 at the top of the funnel. I invest $1,000 in whatever marketing, telemarketing, Facebook marketing, whatever you choose to do in your marketing. I put $1,000 in and I get three customers. In other words, my cost to acquire account is $333. That's huge information for potential acquirer because guess what? They've got lots of money typically. So they can say, okay, if, if, if you're getting three customers for every $1,000 I invest, well, it stands to reason that if I invest ten thousand dollars a month, I'd get thirty customers, and if I invested a hundred grand, I'd get three hundred customers. And so that information, cost per account acquired, is huge. Yeah, and if you could really nail that, I mean, you can make a case for saying, you know, let's go out and borrow money, you know, to do that, right? Almost. I mean, if you can really get sure about that, if 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 it costs, if we can make more money off of you know a client than it costs us to acquire, and we know exactly what it costs us to acquire, that's a pretty valuable ratio. That's huge. It's huge. A lot of small businesses, you know, and when I say small, I'm referring to kind of, uh, you know, 10 person companies, five person companies, 20 person companies, they're acquired, they're purchased not by other companies, but by individuals and individuals buy businesses with debt. And they typically in the United States, at least get an SBA loan, small business administration loan. And the SBA is basically a bank guarantee or a government guaranteed loan that a bank will offer. And it, it will allow an acquirer, an individual, to buy a business that they couldn't ordinarily afford. Well, in order to be, air quotes, bankable, meaning a, a company that a bank would lend to, you have to have some of these metrics dialed in. And now a word from a sponsor. There's no room for idle chat in business. So if email is your only moneymaker, make room for something new. Intercom. Intercom is the only business messenger that starts with real-time chat, then keeps growing your business with conversational bots and guided product tours. Take Intercom customer, Unity. In just 12 months, they converted 45% more visitors through Intercom's messenger. Make room for a new revenue channel. Go to intercom.com slash podcast. That's intercom.com slash podcast. So long, long, long time ago, we're talking 25 years ago, 
um, when I started my consulting. Before I was born, James. <laughs> when I started my consulting practice, um, I looked up one day and 60% of my business was coming from two customers. And lo and behold, for no reasons related to my work for them, they both decided to fire me. Um, and I, you know, I had to scramble. Um, what, what percentage of businesses are kind of find themselves in that same boat? And, and obviously, what role does something like that play in the saleability of a company? Yeah, you're talking about a, a value driver we refer to as the Switzerland structure. And the Switzerland structure is, it, it's named after the country of Switzerland, which as you know, is sort of obsessed with this idea of independence, not cozying up to any one kind of geopolitical you know, faction, whatever. The same could be true of the most valuable companies, meaning the most valuable companies are not dependent on any one constituency. And the typical three problem areas for a lot of small businesses are either they're too dependent on a single employee, too dependent on a single supplier, or as you said in your example, too, too dependent on a single customer. And so most, you know, most acquirers are going to get their uh, radar up if, if, if more than 10% of your revenue comes from a single customer. And, and that's because they're, they're just going to see that as a risk factor, right? They still may buy your business, but they might buy it and, and use an earnout, which is a, a formula they put in place that says, we're not going to give you all of your money up front. We're going to give you part of it, but then you're going to have to work for the second half by making sure those customers that you've been serving stay through the acquisition, which is sort of the enemy for most entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurs want to get their check and leave the next day. And, and so the, the only way you're going to do that is, is if you can demonstrate that you're not too dependent on a single customer. I shouldn't say the only way. One of the important things you need to do in order to you know, get a, a high proportion of your money up front is to demonstrate you're not too dependent on a single customer. So because I'm a marketing consultant, you know, I happen to think marketing strategy is the most important element of any business. And, and central to that is a strategy that allows you to differentiate yourself from the competition. I mean, it just otherwise you're competing on price. I mean, so I teach that greatly. But how, you know, how important is that in, you know, the somebody thinking that they're going to buy a business that, yeah, this you know, they may not have it forever, but they've got some sort of like key differentiator that, you know, makes the competition a little bit irrelevant. I mean, is obviously that's kind of the holy grail of selling your business, isn't it? Oh, it's so important. I'm so glad, I'm glad you brought this up. You know, when an acquirer looks at buying a company, they make a secret little calculation that they never tell you the small business owner about. It's done behind closed doors in a boardroom somewhere. And that is the build versus buy decision, right? So they sit there and they say, okay, you know, John's built this great company over here. Um, is it easier for us to just simply compete with John? In other words, basically replicate what he's created or should we just buy him? And if the answer to it, it would be cheaper to compete than buying him because he hasn't really created anything that unique then they're going to do just that. They're going to create it. And so if you're, you know, if, if you're undifferentiated uh, from a marketing perspective for, for what you do, if you're responding to requests for proposals, RFPs, or if you're, you know, pricing your product by the ounce, by the yard, the chances are you're highly commoditized. As a result, an acquirer is going to say, well, I don't, uh, why do I need to buy this guy's company? I'll just lower the price. And by the way, I have much deeper pockets to whether 
you know, a, a pricing war. I'll just the price and pick up all his business. Whereas if you've created something truly unique, and there's two ways to make your business unique, right? One is to create some technology or something that really, you know, a better mousetrap. But very few small businesses in my experience have a better mousetrap. But a lot more of them have the second point of differentiation, which is better marketing, right? The belief in their eyes of their customers that whatever they do is unique. I'm looking at on my desk, I've got, I don't know if you've seen these, they're all over the place in REI and, and stores like it in the United States. Have you ever seen these Yeti cups, John? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I go to, I go to a lot of my kids like baseball games and, and, and every, you know, dad has, you know, an adult beverage in the Yeti cup. <laughs> these guys have done a tremendous job of taking essentially a, you know, a cooler glass uh, basically a highly commoditized product that we all have in our kitchen cabinets and, and make it into a product that we're sp- spending you know, $20, $30 per cup, right? Because we believe it's unique. Now, some of that is that it is unique. It's a, it's a unique insulative cup, but a lot of it's marketing. And, and that's huge for, for small businesses. Well, they, they, all, they, they just chisel it out of the $700 cooler that they sell you as well. So. <laughs> right. You've seen those too. I uh, haven't been tempted to buy no, no. a $700 cooler quite uh, yet. Nor, nor have I. So a few years ago, you know, somebody could have good marketing, have good customer, or seem to have good revenue and good customers, um, and everything looked hunky-dory. And then the, the internet came along, and now – if you're not keeping your promises, somebody leaves a review, they create a YouTube channel talking about how awful you are. How important is that sort of social proof now become in the saleability factor? Yeah, it's 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 big. It's one of the other drivers we talk about at Value Builder, and that is 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 how willing are your customers to refer you? And we use the standard kind of format that most acquirers have adopted, which is called net promoter score. And I'm sure you've seen this. I mean, it's become sort of the gold standard among enterprise companies for measuring customer satisfaction. It's developed by a guy named Fred Reicheld, made famous by Scott Cook at Intuit. Michael Dell at Dell uses it. These very large companies are all using the same methodology to measure their customer's satisfaction. And it's a single question. And when I tell you the question, you've heard it a thousand times. You've been asked it a thousand times, I'm sure. It's simply, on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or colleague? And if you're a Rackspace user or you're an enterprise rent-a-car customer, you've been asked that question hundreds of times. And it turns out that question is highly predictive, highly correlated, uh, statistically linked to two behaviors. Number one, the customer will indeed refer. And number two, the customer will repurchase. And so if you think about the the sort of currencies or the raw materials for organic growth, and we go back to a growth potential as one of the drivers we talked about earlier, that's really the raw material. And so that's why you really want customers who are willing to refer you. And and one of the way, ways we measure that is using that promoter score, value builder. But there's lots of ways you could measure it. But But the essence is, are my customers happy? Are they willing to talk about me and say nice things to, uh, you know, their friends and colleagues? So we'll go back to the beginning, kind of where you started all this, that, you know, it really comes down to, you know, how, you know, how likely is the business to thrive without the owner? A lot of owners have kind of 
I mean, you know, they started it. They were the chief salesperson. They were the chief, you know, innovator. They were the chief implementer. Maybe eventually they brought people in who, you know, who did some of those. But they've never really freely broke, fully broken away from the control of the business. And I'm sure that sometimes, you know, one of your consultants will come in and say, well, you have to, you know, give up control of the business. We have to start putting in processes that, you know, allow somebody else to make it rain. Does that process happen overnight or does it take years? Oh, man. Yeah, we, we call it hub and spoke. But for a lot of small businesses, they are hub and spoke managers, meaning, all you know, they're the hub in a wheel and all their customers, suppliers, vendor, you know, they're all spokes. And if anything needs to get done, if a you know discount needs to be approved, if a customer you know wants a deal, if an employee wants a vacation, they have to go into the hub, in other words, the owner, to ask to answer that question. And and of course hub and spoke models can be enormously efficient, right? Um, you know, it, it cuts down on a lot of back channel communication if you're a hub and spoke manager, right up until the moment you want to take a vacation. At which time the entire business basically collapses without you. And so that's the definition of an unsellable company when you've got a high hub and spoke score, meaning you're, you're, you're really, you haven't sort of empowered your people to make decisions, uh, without you. So that's a, that's a big one. And, and to your point, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a journey that we're all always on to some extent. I, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, do you remember Peter Drucker, the guy who, of course, I, cited I mean, all, he's all, all the time, the practice of management is probably my, yeah. my most popular book. Yeah. So, I mean, he was sort of the thought of as this sort of, I don't know, the modern day pioneer of management theory. Anyways, he, he talked about that, that, that managers and, and senior managers should focus all of their energy or the vast majority of their hours in their day on two behaviors, on two, two, two you know, kind of tasks. One, product innovation, and two, sales and marketing. Those were the two sort of areas that, that he believed uh, senior executives should focus on in terms of their, their time. And, and if you think about it, most business owners are in some ways spending most of their time focused on those two things. At the same time, and not to contradict what Drucker said, it's those two things w- that you have to actually put into other people's hands in order for your company to be transferable. So as counterintuitive as it feels for most owners, because most owners, they feel like it's it's the product or the service they offer where they really got to be front and center or this, you know, winning new customers. Those are the two behaviors that you've got to somehow, or the two tasks you've got to somehow get into somebody else's hands. And, and as you said in the beginning, it's, it's a journey. It takes a long time. It's not something you can you know, buy some software, or, um, you know, spend a course and, and teach people. It, it takes in many cases years. Well, in many cases, it's deep psychological scars that have to be removed, you know, in order to let go of the reins of some of these things is, is part of the challenge. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we, we, you, you joke, but, uh, we've just done some research and built a little tool actually called Prescore. It, it, it's fascinating. If you look at the data on business owners and their mental health, after they sell. Turns out 75% of business owners one year after selling end up regretting the decision to sell. 
75 percent you think about it when you like to the outsider right it's like winning a lottery you sell your company it should be right up there with the birth of your child your marriage it's these wonderful days but 75 percent look back a year later and regret it and you touched on i think it just a critical point and that is that business owners are too emotionally tied to their companies they haven't disaggregated or 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 separated their ego you know our sense of self-worth and our reason for being from their company and you know if there's one you know thing i would leave your listeners with beyond the practical stuff of recurring revenue and all that is really do some thinking about who you are as a person um what other roles that you play in the world maybe you're a coach or a dad or a uh, volunteer firefighter whatever you are or a mom or you know whatever and 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 really getting clear on the value you add and the role those things play in your life because if you just cut the cord and sell your company man it'll leave a huge void if you haven't done some thinking about other areas of your life that give you a sense of purpose amen to that so one, i want to ask you on one last question <clears throat> on average and you may not have a good number so you can generalize here but on average, when, when somebody contacts a value builder, uh, system, coach, or what you've seen, how long is the process of actually getting, like, I'm sure you have a checklist to say, well, we got to go work on these three things and clean them up. I mean, yeah. what, what's kind of the process before somebody really is ready to sell? So interesting. We did um, a study actually with one of our uh, certified value builders, a guy named Steve Sutton, and we took a group of 40 small business owners through an eight month study. And we had them all complete the value bit of question at the beginning of the study. We had them do it again at six months and again at eight months. And on average, the average participant in the study improved the value of their company by 18%. So you may say, okay, 18%. Well, that's, that's not a big deal. Well, actually, if you think about it, the context of this is your most valuable asset, most likely your business, maybe your house, but it's probably even more valuable than your company, than your home. And, and, and we're lucky to eke out 5 or 7% growth in our home. If we can create 18% of increased value in our business in just eight months, you annualize that, it's like whatever, more than 20%. So it's, it's a huge impact. So I think it's a lifelong journey, John. As long as the business exists, you know, I believe you should be you should be tweaking it and fine tuning it to sell. Um, but even in an, in as little as eight months, I think you can make a material impact on the value of your company. So, John, where can somebody find out about? Uh, I know you have a little assessment, you know, that will help people get started on these eight eight drivers. So, tell people where they can find that. Valuebuilder.com. And you're right. There's the value builder questionnaire. It's free to take. Uh, give you your score out of 100. Uh, typical user average is about 59 out of a possible 100. The folks that achieve a score of 90 or greater, so those would be our sort of all stars, are are getting offers more than double that of the average user. So it's just at valuebuilder.com. Well, John, it was great catching up with you as always. And I know you're you're going to be uh, working with our. Uh, consultant network in uh, depending upon when people are listening to this October in, in uh, Savannah, Georgia. So that's just one of the, another one of the benefits of being part of the duct tape marketing consultant network. You get to hear from smart guys like John. So John, I can't, again. I can't wait to, to that, to that session because I think 
The other thing that we talked about today is how important marketing is to almost every one of these drivers. So I'm, I'm keen to kind of be with your guys and, and learn from them as much as they'll maybe take away a couple of things from me too. Awesome. Thanks again, John. Hopefully, well, I know we'll see you out there soon on the road. Looking forward to it.